if you've been tracking along with us, we've been entrenched in the book of Acts, and uh, after all these weeks, we've made it the whole way to chapter 6, and, uh, and, and actually, if we're being honest, we could have gone slower. There's so much content and meat here, and, uh, and I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're learning from it. I know that God is just awakening me to aspects of the story of, the, of His Word and the story of His Son, the story of His church, the story of the gospel that I have not seen before. And uh, so I hope and pray that's happening to you. Last week we closed up chapter 5, and chapter 5 is when we see real legit persecution come into the church. Uh, We see that not only did they tell them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, they flogged them this time. So they beat them pretty hard and pretty severely, and then they sent them out on their way. But the most beautiful thing, and it's how we ended it, is we saw that the apostles left that whole exchange rejoicing because they have found themselves worthy of dishonor for the name, the name being Jesus. Paul later on refers to it as the name that is above every other name, right? That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the name And they found themselves in a situation that up to that point in their minds had never happened to anyone other than Jesus. So here they are being threatened the same way as Jesus was, by the same guys Jesus was, and then being flogged the same way Jesus was. And they found that to be an amazing honor for them to suffer what the world would say is dishonor for the sake of Jesus. And they looked at these men as they walked out, beaten up and ready to go back to the church after they had prayed for boldness, and they said, we would rather obey God than men. Essentially telling them, we appreciate your role. We appreciate what you believe. But you have no authority over us in comparison to Jesus. So we're going to continue to do it. It wasn't this like disrespectful yelling and demeaning them. It was actually a respectful, we're going to submit to the beating. We're not going to fight you on it. We're going to leave rejoicing that you actually hold us in the same esteem that you held Jesus in. You are as fearful of the message now through us as you were when Jesus was giving it. And it's like the, the apostles see that were like, this is awesome. This is awesome. So they wanted to obey God above all else. The, and when we, when we see someone in a situation like that, what that exposes to all of humanity is what that person treasures. And the, what they were trying to take away from Peter and John in this moment could not be taken from them unless they relinquished it. Do you get that? If you go back to Job... Job had the worst day in all of humanity, and the following day was worse than the one before. All of those earthly things that he was blessed with were taken from him. His family, his wealth, his his home, his prominence, his health, everything. But one thing could not be taken from him unless he gave it up, and that was his love for his Lord, his love for God. And it's the same thing with these men in front of the Sanhedrin being threatened to never speak in the name of Jesus again. And they're saying, no, 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 you can't take that from us. 
You might be able to change my physical person right now through a beating. You might be able to, to take my, the comfort level I feel in this moment away from me and make me feel physical pain. You might be able to take away any honor or esteem that I have with the people outside of these walls. You might be able to take that. If you wanted to, you could probably take my, my wealth. You could probably take my family. But you cannot take from me the joy that I've found solely in Christ. And you can't remove the boldness that I asked for that God gave me. That's what Peter and John are saying to the Sanhedrin. And it's inspiring because that same truth echoes thousands of years later to us here today in this place. So we ended last week looking at it and saying, what are, we will, are we willing to suffer, quote-unquote, dishonor for the name? Their dishonor required a beating at the hands of religious leaders. What's our dishonor? Getting unfriended? Not having as many Twitter followers as we would like? Isn't it ridiculous when you hear it out loud? The kind of things we put so much time and attention in building up some kind of persona or some kind of uh, reputation that's built and founded on sand. And then when it's taken from us, we're devastated. Why? It's because we don't have a foundation that Peter and John had to stand in this moment and realize that their employment, gone. These guys weren't fishermen anymore. Do you realize that? They're never called fishermen I mean, I'm sure somewhere along the line, they threw a line in the water or they threw a net in the water. But, but right now, they're apostles, they're teachers. We don't see them have to file their taxes because we don't see them receive any paycheck. We just knew that God was providing for them and they knew it. And they found great joy. And when I hear, in, back in, in chapter 4, when I hear these followers of Jesus pray for boldness, we tend to focus on the boldness that comes from them using their words. But do you realize the kind of boldness it takes to live in a hostile environment that hates your message and to not have any earthly security to stand on? None. They don't have homes. They don't have reputations. They don't have necessarily families that we hear about. We, we know they have families. We know they have hobbies. We know they have interests because they're human beings. But that's not, they're praying for boldness to continue on this path in all of its forms. You know what kind of boldness it takes to sit down at a family dinner? Put yourself in the place of Stephen, who we'll look at next week, and, and probably hear the people coming back to you because some of these people, as we're going to see in, chapter, in verse 7 of this chapter today, are priests that were coming to know Christ. You know the kind of boldness it takes to step back in to your staunch legalistic society and tell them that this is what I live for now? Maybe some of you know exactly what that feels like. My father-in-law came to know Christ, really came to know Christ. His staunch Catholic mother told him, I'm won't, I will not come to your wedding. Now, that takes a boldness to be able to be willing to say, well, I'm still, I'm still going to follow Christ and I'm still going to marry this woman. And Grandma did end up coming to the wedding. But doesn't it take a boldness to stand up for your faith? 
And I feel like in situations like that, it's a whole lot harder than being willing to put your job on the line. Because now you're standing in direct opposition, like Jesus said, to your family. And we see this riddled through the rest of the story of Acts. We see people that pursued God at a bold level, and the only thing that they could really anchor themselves in on is Jesus. So they built their lives on a firm foundation, rock, not sand. So we ended last week really asking that question, are we willing to suffer, quote-unquote, I say it that way, dishonor, because the dishonor that they were feeling and experiencing in Acts is very different than what we would have to suffer here in our culture. So today, it's like Satan's going to amp some things up here. Now, we have to always remember, there's a main character in all of Scripture. Who is it? Jesus. Good answer. Some of you were like, I think it's Jesus. I, I don't want to say Jesus because maybe I'm wrong, right? It's Jesus. Listen, I'll give you a little tip. If so if pastor ever asks you a question, it's safe to answer Jesus, okay? <laughs> just, just picture you're four years old, and you're either going to say the Bible, Jesus, or church. One of those is probably right, okay? So the main character in all of Scripture is Jesus. Let's ask it again. Who's the main character in all of Scripture? That was a little bit better. That was a little bit better. There's still people like, I'm still not sure. <laughs> so the main character in Scripture is Jesus, riddled through every page from beginning to end. We can't forget that there's an antagonist at the same amount of time. For every protagonist, there's always an antagonist. Jesus is the main character. He's the hero. We know he wins. There's still an antagonist, Satan. And he's the thief of all things good. That's what he wants to do. He wants to... Now, listen, the difference that we have between Satan and like a, a comic book movie is in like in a comic book movie, the villain actually believes he can win. He actually believes he can win. And so the, the movie comes to a... a, 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 a a huge culmination when you realize that either one of two things happens. Either the villain is done, he's gone, or he comes to the realization that he can't win. That's how these comic book cosmic stories end. When you realize you can't win, it's like the end of the story. Satan knows he can't win. He's well informed. He cannot win. So his tactics shifted from the day he got dispelled and expelled from the heavenlies. From that day on, he decided that he was going to spend every ounce of energy he had to try to make God look bad. To be the exact opposite in your life of what God is. To convince you and I that the promises of God could not possibly be true. That's how he started off in Genesis. And he has not let up once. Satan in Genesis 3 put his foot to the floor and he has not touched the brake for thousands of years. Thousands of years. And do you know why he keeps doing it? Because it keeps working. 
keeps working. When he whispered lies to Eve and Adam in the garden, it worked. So he's not going to change his tactics now because it, it keeps working. He keeps whispering lies to you that you can't live like this. I mean, that was, that was a unique phase in human history. We can't, the church can't look like that. But Satan in chapter 6 realizes that, that persecution and whispering lies into the ears of the religious elite didn't work. It did not discourage them. It actually built the church up. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 6, it's on page 631. There are two things that we're going to look at today. One is we see a division emerge in the early church because Satan did not have any victory when he brought persecution at an introductory level into the life of the church. He didn't have any success, so now he's going to try a different tactic, a tactic that, quite frankly, has worked for him for thousands of years in the life of the church since this moment, even though it didn't work in this moment. And the other thing we're going to see is the establishment of deacons, meaning that people are going to start to identify how they can best use their gifts in the life of the church. It's a really cool moment in history. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, meaning that in the days that they had walked away from persecution and rejoiced that they were worthy to carry the name and to suffer dishonor for the name, that's those days. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, okay, what's happening here? What's happening is that the church is expanding and it's growing, and in this growth, Satan is whispering lies into the, into the ears of the people that make up the church. And out of that discrimination, or at least perceived discrimination, in how the early church was caring for widows, starts to seep its way in. So it was either a discrimination, or it was at least a perceived discrimination, that there were certain widows that were never getting food in the food distribution, and those that were. Now, I want you to remember those resources. You remember the resources that were being laid at the apostles' feet? So we've seen this since Acts chapter 2. We've seen people sell fields and sell homes and sell land and donate those proceeds, lay it at the apostles' feet for the furtherance of the gospel. And one of the things is to distribute those out to those who have need, is what it said. So what we see in chapter 6 is a result that that's actually happening. They've set up in the different areas that there are distributed distribution centers and distribution times where these resources are handed out. Now, widows 
were not held in very high esteem. The husband was the one that could work and earn money, so the widows had to depend on the community to care for them. And some of them are being overlooked in the food distribution. So I want to, before we break this down, I just want to say this is a lot of people. This is a lot of people they're providing for because they're providing for people that have come to know Christ. And in that, they have alienated themselves from the religious, religious elite part of society that they were the ones that were probably doing the food distributions and helping the poor before, but now they're holding that power over people and saying, no, you want to be in Camp Jesus, go right ahead, but you can't have our bread. So now they depend on the actual church the church of Jesus to, to provide for their needs. Let's just walk through this. Acts 2.41, 3,000 people. Acts 2.47, God is adding to their number day by day. Acts 4.4, 4, 5,000 people. Acts 5.14, the gospel is advancing and people are growing and coming into the kingdom more than ever. Acts 9.31, which I know we're not there yet. Acts 9.31 talks about how the church is being built up and multiplied. And multiplied to me is such a beautiful word because it's exponential growth. Addition is slow growth. Multiplication is exponential growth. So the church is, is not just being built up. It's multiplying. Acts 13, 49, the word sped throughout all the region. Acts 16, 5, the, this church is strengthened and increased daily. Acts 19, 20, word of God grew and it, uh, and it prevailed mightily. It is spreading, and people are growing, and the church is growing with it, and there's more and more people, thousands upon thousands of people. Some of them can take care of themselves. Some of them can not just take care of themselves, but they can use some of the extra wealth they have to provide for those who can't provide for themselves. So I'm not sure what the number of people that are in need of this assistance are, but we do know that it has to be in the thousands. So, there's a huge need. And where huge needs are felt and free things are distributed, this unity always has an opportunity to thrive. Now, what we don't see is selfish people saying, no, 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 like you gave them five pieces and I need, I need five because you only gave me three. You don't see people going and getting five loaves and then walking back and changing their clothes so they look different and then go back and get five more. We're not necessarily seeing that. What we are seeing is that there was a complaint that arose and it must have had credibility because the apostles did something about it. If this was ridiculous... We've seen enough from the apostles to know that they would have just said, this is ridiculous. But this had credibility. You've got to remember that back in Acts chapter 2, when we hear about the emergence of the church, like-mindedness, unity amongst this grouping of people that are, that are committed and, and surrendered to the person of Jesus, one of their core identity markers is unity. It's like-mindedness. They were all in one accord, remember? And they gained favor with all the people, and God added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So unity is a core marker. So what happens 
is the apostles see this and they say, wait, time out. In modern day, this is what would happen. You'd have a small church, you'd do a food drive, okay? Or you'd do like a, a, just a food distribution of some kind. Someone say, hey, listen, someone so, we're, we're seeing this, it's not being taken care of, pastor, this is what we hired you to do, fix it. That's essentially what's happening. They go to the apostles, they say, hey, listen, you're the ones in charge, you got to stop what you're doing, stop, get your nose out of the Bible, stop preaching for a couple seconds, you got to get down and dirty and fix this. Now, the apostles can get a bad rap when uncon- not contextualizing what they say, because their response can sound harsh, it says, they summoned the full number of the disciples and they looked at them and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I think some people read that like it's Thurston Howell III saying it. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables, right? Like it's some kind of haughty, arrogant statement, right? Like that's so beneath me, right? Does anyone in here, by the way, not know who Thurston Howell III is? Gilligan's Island, folks. Get yourself some Nick at night. Anyway, I digress. That's not in my notes, by the way. It sounds elitist, doesn't it? I mean, if we're being honest, it sounds elitist. If you were to have a pastor come in and candidate for a position and you ask him a question, like, hey, if there was a need and widows are being overlooked in the food distribution, what would you do about it? And his response to you was, it's not right for me to give up the studying and preaching of God's word to serve tables. You'd be like, oh, we're not hiring that guy. But that's exactly what the apostles say. That's exactly what they say. Now, the response is noteworthy because they actually work hard at solving the issue. And what we see as the church progresses is that what they did was actually better for the church than for them to go do it. So in our human mind, especially in how we view the American church, what we would say is that, that in that moment, they should have been like, whoa, guys, like, let's just take a break here. We've got to make sure this doesn't happen. Let's go out to these food distribution lines. Let's distribute the food. Let's make sure we've got a good system in place because we're the ones that are called to fix this thing, right? But that's not what they do. They get the 12 together. They have a discussion. They pray about it. They seek the word. And then they say... It's not right for us to stop preaching the word, to stop studying the word, to serve tables. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Luke emphasizes again that the church is actually built and sustained by God's word and spirit. The problem whenever you, we don't lead this way is we get ourselves to the point where we believe we know enough of the word of God that we can start focusing on some other stuff. We get ourselves convinced that we're solid enough on the word, so let's start some programs. We're solid enough on the word, so let's start some cool ministry ideas. And that, if that mindset seeps into the church, then the people who should keep themselves ever in the Word, to know the Word, to teach the Word, stop doing that and start doing other stuff. And it looks good, 
and it feels good, and there's more people coming in the building, and that makes it look like a success. But that's not what these guys do. That's not what the early church did. That's not what the apostles did. And I tend to think they're right because up to this point, all they've done is study God's Word, pray, and preach. That's what they've done. And they've also, along the way, had to have invested in other people because they knew who to call. They knew the names. These seven names, they didn't just come out of thin air. Oh, what's your name? Nicholas? Oh, hey, yeah. You're a deacon now. That's not how it played out. They knew these people. They knew them to the point where Luke could tell you where some of them were even from, their background. These people had sat under the teaching of the apostles and were probably itching for an opportunity to do something for the kingdom but didn't know what. So the Greek word that comes out at us here is called diakonos, and it's where the word deacon comes from. Do you see the description that he gives here? Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, this duty of being deacons, diakonos. The ones who recognize the needs in the body have the capabilities and the gift set that they can address that. We're not asking them to spend every waking minute studying the Word of God so that they can teach it and preach it. We're going to see next week that some of them actually are really good at communicating the Word of God, like Stephen. But that's not their primary concern. The apostles are saying that you need to stay in your lane in some regards here. So only as a church really faithfully preaches and teaches Scripture and then pleads the Holy Spirit, begs the Holy Spirit to bless their efforts, can a church really expect to see real conversion and growth in godliness. So the church is it's, it's created by God. It's sustained by God's Word. It's created by God's Word. God's Word is what developed and spoke the church into existence. God's Word is what sustains the church's energy. When a church feels like it's about to close its doors, when a church feels like they're suffering and it's hard times, what do we know that a church instinctively starts to do? Churches tend to, in those moments, do things like have a 24-hour prayer visual. They fast. They pray. Because we're hardwired, the church is hardwired in us to know that the church was created by God's Word and through God's Word, and it's sustained by it. Even when we step off of that track, we somehow deep within us know that the two things that we need to know is that the church was created by God's Word, and it's sustained by God's Word. And if we take our eyes off of God's Word, off of the preaching, the studying, the teaching of God's Word, then we start to develop things on our own human wisdom. <coughs> Scriptures tell us that human wisdom is actually demonic. <coughs> so the apostles, they weren't like indifferent. They weren't like... Hey, listen, we don't want to bother ourselves with widows and whether they eat or not. I'm studying the Bible. Leave me be. That's not what's happening here. They're not indifferent to it. 
They actually asked the congregation to appoint for them seven people so that they themselves could continue to focus on the task that they knew they were appointed by God to do. Now, these guys were different than the rest of humanity will ever be in a leadership role. These guys were actually appointed to their role by Jesus himself. Jesus himself is who put these guys in their positions. And they know what Jesus told them to do. They were responsible to Christ, devoting themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the church really joyfully submits themselves to this, and then seven really good leaders come out of that. The apostles then take the time to put their hands on them and pray for them, to send them out, to, to, to put their hands on them and pray. Now, we might not think much on that, but how many things have we seen happen in the early church when the apostles put their hands on something? I mean, we've seen a man who can't walk for 41 years of his life stand up and have a fresh set of legs under him. Why? And, that, and Peter didn't even touch him. So when the apostles lay their hands on something, it's a blessing. And it indicated these men were being appointed to a special function that lived inside the church. To make sure that people were provided for and not overlooked. That when the church is living healthily, the deacons don't hide behind a boardroom door. They live within and amongst the people and serve them so that the needs of the body are met. Because the wealth of the body is shared, the needs of the body are met. And the deacons are the ones with their ears to the rail to know that that's happening. Now this can be kind of awkward to talk about. Because it can sound like uh, there's things that are beneath the pastor. Things that are underneath and beneath and, and demeaning. I don't think that's the heart behind this message at all. That does not reflect the character of Jesus, so therefore that cannot be true. But we can learn three really important lessons about the deacons and their role in the life of the church from this passage. First, we learn that deacons are to be are they there to really free up the church's leaders, the, the pastors, the preachers, the teachers? They're to free them up from the administrative concerns so that they can focus on the ministry of prayer and the word. So if the pastor is the one that is supposed to spend 40 hours of his week going and making sure that the needs of the body are met and then spending, you know, two, three, whatever time's left, on his sermon. The American church tends to say, we're okay with that. I think that's a fair assessment. I am a pastor, so I have heard those snarky comments about how pastors only work on Sundays. If you're a youth pastor, they change it to Wednesday. I wore both hats for a while, so I got credit for working two days a week. It was awesome. I've heard the snarky comments of, what do you do all week? Do you just hold yourself up in your office and read the Bible? Boy, that's a hard job. Wish my job looked like that, right? I've seen pastors pull into the parking lot in a new car that was a gift from somebody in the church, and obviously somebody says, we pay him too much. 
That's why I drive a 21-year-old Jeep, by the way. Which, can I add, was a gift that I didn't have to pay for. Somebody bought that for me. So, the deacon's main responsibility is to come alongside the apostles in this setting, come alongside them and, and say, we don't want you to stop studying the word. We don't want you to stop teaching the word. Because the church is growing like gangbusters because of that ministry. Because you are committed to the word, because you are committed to teaching the word, because you have prayed for boldness, we want you to keep doing that because God is answering those prayers abundantly and people are coming to know Christ all over the place because you are doing that. So the deacons are coming in and saying, we don't want you to stop doing that because if you stop doing that to do this, A, we don't get to live out of how God made us, and B, you're not doing what God called you to do, which means this amazing amount of growth that's happening will stop, potentially stop. So no, you continue devoting yourselves to the Word and to the teaching and the preaching, and when the heat comes down, we know it's going to fall on you anyway, so we want you to be prepared for it. That's the first thing. The second thing is that deacons are to function as the chief servants in the church. The deacons get the privilege and the honor of setting the pace of what service to the body looks like. They get to set the pace when people are like, I don't really know how to serve people. I don't really know how to help meet people's needs. The church can sort of say, well, just watch the deacons. They got it down to a science. And finally, deacons are a gift to the church to promote unity. To promote unity. If deacons in the church, diaconus, are functioning at the level God's called them to, then moments like this, this disunity opportunity, don't happen. People can't say, I'm not getting enough. People are overlooking me. No, because people are serving the body. The word is being studied. The word is being preached. The resources are being shared, and the resources are being distributed. And when, every, when all those things are working at the level God has ordained them to work, unity happens. And when they stop working at the level God has ordained them to work, disunity has an opportunity to leak in. So to keep disunity from getting in and spreading throughout the congregation, the apostles put the deacons in place to help keep the church unified. Their service and their care for the needs of others, it maintained the integrity of the church. Them, the, the deacons. Mark Deaver wrote this. He said, really, this is the goal for all the gifts that God's Spirit gives to us his church, to build one another up and encourage each other. Paul says to the, Corinth, to the Corinthians that God's gifts are for the common good. He exhorts these early Christians, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, 
All must be done for strengthening. So Peter wrote, each should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, administering God's grace. Administering God's grace. That is a job description for a deacon. A deacon's job description is to administer God's grace. The apostle or pastor or teacher's job description is to know the word, to stay faithful to the word, to teach the word. And in this moment, when the church is in its tens of thousands and reaching far beyond the reach that 12 men could ever lead themselves, they're starting to appoint leaders to take care of things in Jerusalem, and this model is going to bleed out to all of society, and it starts right here. If we don't understand why it got started, then we won't do it right ourselves. So the passage has a lot of important applications for every church member. For every person that attends a church or is a part of the church, this has several things. But the first thing is every Christian should value a rightly ordered church. Every Christian should value that. Every Christian should value that there are certain aspects to the church that the Bible spends a great deal of time talking about church order and church offices. Acts chapter 6 makes, makes it pretty plain why a rightly ordered church is really important. Biblical order preserves church unity. If we're going to go looking and find opportunities to be the agents of unity within our local churches, we should be those who value the, the doctrines of the church too. Now, you're hearing this from somebody who does not thrive in administration, organization, or structures. This is actually encouraging to me. I feel like I am staying in my lane. But if we do not lead well, if we do not put time and energy into recognizing that the Bible does have structures, that the Bible does have order to it, and that the church functions most healthily when we put some time and energy into those structures, then we'll fail. That's where it's not encouraging to me. Because I realize my shortcomings as a leader have not been to do that. And that's why we're making steps to get there, which is a whole other conversation in and of itself. Second thing, like the apostles, every church member should value the time the church leaders and pastors dedicate to the ministry of word and prayer. Now, that could be an awkward sentence for a pastor to give, but a church member should value a pastor spending his time invested in the word. And not complain that there's more time spent studying the Bible than going and visiting said person in the hospital. Not that that is not important. But there should never be a complaint that your pastor is spending too much time studying the Bible. There should never be a complaint that your pastor, all he does... Now listen, hear me clearly. There are plenty of pastors who have sat in their offices and studied the Bible, studied the Bible, and never interacted with their church until they got up here and wanted all the attention for all their hard work and labor of studying the Bible. And then they went back to their office, and that's the only time you ever saw him. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying that the apostles lived amongst the people. The apostles ministered amongst the people. The apostles did life with them. They shared meals with them. They shared resources with each other. You realize they weren't holed up in some, some citadel where all the apostles hung out. No, they were with the people. They were amongst the people. And in the meantime, while they were with the people and amongst the people, they were devoting every bit of time that they could to studying and teaching the Word of God. In the meantime, they were living with everybody else. In verse 7, Luke talks about the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, that could be so easily overlooked, but let's read that again, and I want to see if the certain word that's in there pops out at you. I'll overemphasize it just so it does. And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests, the same ones that last chapter were flogging these guys and telling them to never speak in the name of Jesus. These same priests that put Jesus to death. Now, a great many of them are coming to know Christ. Why? Because there is a unity that exists in the local church because people are starting to live out of who God made them to be. They're working hard at discovering who God made them to be, and then they're doing it. And it's catching the attention, not just of the people on the fringes of society that are hearing this message for the first time. It's catching the attention of people that have entrenched themselves in legalism their entire lives, and they're saying, I've had it wrong all this time. I want that. And they're taking the bold step to follow God's call to be unified with the, true, with the true church. So as these deacons served the church and the church maintained its unity, the apostles were able to focus in on God's word and prayer. And as a result of that, the word of God continued to increase because Luke is a systematic communicator. Luke tells us stuff systematically. And he tells us that the problem was, first he presents us with the problem. Then he presents us with the communication. Then he presents us with the solution. And then he shows us the result. That's how Luke communicates. So he says that the problem was people were overlooked. The conversation was, how do we fix it? The solution was, we need to put people in the right spots in leadership. And the result was, the gospel continued to grow just like it had been. Now it's catching the attention and the conversion of the religious elite of the day. Those who had been the most hostile to the apostles and to the gospel were now being saved as well. There's a lot of takeaways here. But I think the main thing is that God has gifted the church with resources. God has gifted the church with you. People. The church is people. It's not a building. You realize tomorrow our landlord could sell this place and we'd have about 60 days to find a new place to meet. Would that make us any less a church? No. It wouldn't. 
So the church isn't where you meet. The church is the people. And if we're going to function healthily, we're going to look to God's Word and say, how did God make me to work best in the kingdom of God? And if I can't find an answer to that, I'm going to go to other members of the church and I'm going to have them help me figure it out. We're going to pray. We're going to get into God's word together. We're going to have accountability together and we're going to grow together. And you know what happens in the church when that kind of stuff happens? Growth and unity. I don't know where you fit. Some of you have figured it out and I think it's awesome. Some of you maybe haven't figured it out. Some of you maybe don't want to figure it out. But anywhere you fall in that spectrum and even places I maybe didn't think to recognize, the church doesn't exist without people because the church is people. The apostles would have been robbing the people they loved and were leading if they decided to do all this work themselves. They would have robbed them of it. So the apostles said, we know what Jesus called us to do and for this to continue the momentum that it has, we need to be able to focus in on this stuff and what we're doing. So you pick seven people that are qualified for it. We're going to have them spearhead this movement of service to the kingdom. So I don't know where you fit in the local church. I would love to be able to come to you and say, this is what I see. And some of you I have. But if we're not praying and seeking the Word of God, we definitely won't find our answer. We won't even ask the question, a lot of us. I just know that history tells us that the church functions at its best when we're unified and thriving in who God made us to be. Not who we think we should be, not who someone told us we are, and who God says we are. Let's pray. God, thank you for creating and giving the church what an amazing gift we have to know you, to, uh, to be in relationship with an all-knowing and all-powerful God. God, in the midst of us not knowing who we are or where we're going to go or how we're going to do uh, anything in this life, we know that no matter where we're at in life, your grace runs us down and finds us. It wraps us up, it captivates us, and it changes us. Your grace, freely given to us, helps us find the truth behind who you really are. And then in that, we get to live in freedom. Freedom from sin and freedom from shame, freedom from regret, freedom from unbelief. We get that privilege, we get that honor. So I pray that we can do this well, that you are honored and glorified in what you hear and see. Thank you that in our pursuit of you, your grace finds us.